We are podcasting. We are podcasting. We are podcasting. The Jodcast. We take the summer holidays so you don't have to. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Neil Young. The Jodcast. August 2009 edition. Hello and welcome to the August edition of the Jodcast. And on the show this month we've got Stuart, Jen and Neil. Hi guys. Hi Dave. Hi Dave. Dave. And hi everyone. And so on the show this month we'll be finding out a little bit more about Jodcast Live, which will hopefully be on the 21st of November at Jodraw Bank. But also we'll be finding out about the Australian astronomer Ruby Payne Scott. And Ian tells us what you can see in the night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. New method detects ancient stellar explosions. Probing the black hole in M87. And giant bubbles on Betelgeuse. But first, in breaking news, it has been reported that the long-awaited eclipse of the star Epsilon Aurigae has begun. Most eclipsing variables are caused by two stars in orbit, periodically blocking each other's light. But in the case of Epsilon Aurigae, the eclipsing object is thought to be a long disk of gas, possibly containing stars hidden inside the dense material. Spectroscopic observations by Robin Leadbeater, an amateur astronomer in the UK, have shown changes in the spectrum which could be due to the leading edge of the eclipsing cloud as it crosses in front of the star. If this is the case, then as the eclipse progresses, the star will begin to fade as thicker parts of the cloud move across our line of sight. Eclipses in this system occur every 27.1 years, and the star is predicted to fade from its normal magnitude of 3.0 down to 3.8 by the end of the year. Amateur astronomers interested in variable stars are encouraged to make their own observations and send their results to the AAVSO. Using telescopes high on the islands of Hawaii, astronomers have detected light from supernovae which occurred roughly 11 billion years ago smashing the previous distance record for such objects. Led by Jeff Cook, a cosmologist at the University of California, the team used a new technique to look for the tiny change in brightness of a distant galaxy due to a stellar explosion. They were looking for the signatures of a class of explosion known as Type 2N supernovae, caused by stars between 50 and 100 times as massive as the Sun. These stars are different because they shed a large amount of material before they die. When the final catastrophic explosion occurs, the remaining material and the resulting shock wave ploughs into the surrounding gas previously expelled from the star, resulting in a remnant so bright that it is still visible many years after the event. Because these Type 2N supernovae are the brightest class of stellar explosion, they are the most likely to be detected at large distances. The normal method of searching for supernovae is to compare two images of the same galaxy taken on different nights and look for new objects in the image. While this technique works well for nearby galaxies where supernovae will appear relatively bright, it becomes increasingly difficult in more distant galaxies. Rather than looking at individual images taken on single nights, Cook's team took five years of images covering four separate patches of sky and stacked them together, creating one composite image per field for each year of observations. By comparing the brightnesses of each galaxy in the stacked images, the astronomers identified four potential supernovae. They then used the Keck telescope to observe the spectra of each of the candidates, using the light collected to determine the object's composition and distance. This follow-up work showed that three of the candidates were supernovae, two of which occurred more than 11 billion years ago, beating the previous record by 2 billion years. The results were published in the 9th of July issue of the journal Nature, where the authors suggest that using this method with planned and optic surveys on 8-metre-class telescopes could identify an estimated 40,000 Type 2 and supernovae at this distance, as well as even older explosions caused by some of the first stars created following the Big Bang, probing stellar processes all the way back to the very early universe. Among the brightest and most energetic objects in the universe are so-called active galactic nuclei, these are objects outside the Milky Way, thought to be powered by material falling onto supermassive black holes in the centre of other galaxies. 
the process can create powerful jets which can accelerate particles up to very high speeds and generate very high energy gamma ray emission. Although astronomers have known for some time that these AGN are bright sources of gamma rays, they didn't know exactly where in these galaxies the high energy emission originated. But in research published in the online edition of Science magazine on the 2nd of July, a collaboration of more than 350 scientists has finally narrowed it down. High energy emission from the nucleus of the active galaxy M87 was first detected in 1998, and gamma ray outbursts have since been confirmed by the Hess, Veritas and Magic telescopes, located in Namibia, Arizona and La Palma respectively. All of these experiments are gamma ray detectors which pick up this high energy emission, but do not have sufficient resolving power to accurately determine the source of the outbursts within M87. Located 50 million light years away, M87 is the largest galaxy in the Virgo cluster, and contains a central black hole six billion times as massive as the Sun. In order to determine the source of the gamma rays, the Hess, Veritas and Magic collaborations teamed up with astronomers using the Very Long Baseline Array, a collection of ten radio telescopes spread across North America from Hawaii to the Caribbean, capable of a resolution of one million times greater than that of the gamma ray telescopes. By linking widely separated radio telescopes together, astronomers can synthesize a much larger telescope, resulting in images with much finer detail. Using all four of these instruments, Hess, Veritas, Magic and the VLBA, the team monitored M87 over 50 nights between January and May 2008. As well as detecting gamma ray flares, the observers also detected large flares of radio waves from M87. Using the VLBA's high resolution, they determined that these flares were occurring at the same time as the gamma ray flares, and were being generated in a region very close to the black hole, where material falling in forms a tightly rotating torus, known as an accretion disk. The observations show that the high-energy emission is coming from an area no larger than 50 times the size of the black hole's event horizon, the area within which matter cannot escape from the black hole, roughly twice the size of our own solar system. Using state-of-the-art techniques, two teams of astronomers have obtained the sharpest-ever images of the supergiant star Betelgeuse. The second brightest star in the constellation of Orion, Betelgeuse appears red even to the naked eye, and is one of the largest stars known, almost 1,000 times larger than the Sun. It is a type of star known as a red supergiant, and is so enormous that if it were placed at the centre of the solar system, its surface would lie almost at the orbit of Jupiter. Stars this massive run out of fuel much quicker than smaller stars like the Sun, and eventually explode as supernovae. There are still some unanswered questions about red supergiants, one of which is how they shed material. These stars can lose as much material as is contained in the entire Sun in just 10,000 years, but the mechanism by which this occurs is not well understood. But in work accepted for publication in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, two independent teams using ESO's VLT have made observations which might provide some answers. The first team used adaptive optics, which attempts to correct for the fluctuations in the Earth's atmosphere which make stars appear to twinkle. They combine this with another technique known as lucky imaging, where only the sharpest exposures are combined to produce a high-resolution image, in a similar way to imaging with a webcam through a backyard telescope. The resulting images are so sharp that they could detect a tennis ball at the distance of the International Space Station. The team's images of Betelgeuse show a large plume of gas extending out from the star to more than six times the radius of the star itself, showing that it is not shedding material evenly in all directions. Meanwhile, the other team used the VLT interferometer, which combines the light from three telescopes to produce an image with much greater resolution. Using this technique, the second team were able to indirectly detect features up to four times smaller than in the other team's images, allowing them to study the surface of Betelgeuse. They found that the gas in the star's atmosphere is moving up and down in giant bubbles, like huge convection cells almost as large as the star itself. Together, these two superbly detailed observations suggest that it is these large-scale motions in Betelgeuse's atmosphere which are responsible for producing the giant plumes of material. And finally, almost exactly 15 years after astronomers around the world watched as fragments of the comet Schumacher-Levy 9 hit Jupiter 
leaving black scars on the planet's cloudy surface. An amateur astronomer caught images of another impact on the gas giant. First imaged on July 19th by Anthony Wesley in New South Wales, Australia, news of the impact rapidly spread around the world. Within hours, several observers had confirmed the new black blemish on Jupiter's surface, and within days it had been imaged by the Keck Telescope and NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility in Hawaii. These infrared observations showed that the scar was warm, indicating an upwelling of material in the planet's atmosphere, probably caused by an impact. Even the recently upgraded Hubble Space Telescope was used to image the event, despite commissioning of the new instruments not being complete. The Hubble image was the first science observation carried out with the newly installed Wide Field Camera 3, and shows the instrument is performing well. The most recent images of the impact site show that the black spot is evolving, and now contains two nuclei, probably due to the high winds and complex dynamics in Jupiter's dense atmosphere. By coincidence, another amateur astronomer, Frank Melillo, of New York in the USA, also spotted a new feature in the atmosphere of Venus on the same day. The Venus Express spacecraft in orbit around the planet confirmed that the spot had first appeared four days earlier. Observations in the ultraviolet suggest that this feature was not caused by a meteorite impact, and various suggestions have been put forward, such as a volcanic eruption or a concentration of charged particles from the Sun. But as yet, it is not known exactly what caused it. Thanks, Megan. As Megan was saying in the news there, a possible asteroid or comet has recently just hit Jupiter, and that was first imaged by an amateur astronomer in Australia. And on the subject of near-Earth objects that could possibly hit us, NASA have just launched a new website at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, called Asteroid Watch. Yeah, so the Jupiter impact has generated a lot of public interest in near-Earth objects. So this website, we're not quite sure what's going to happen on it, but I think you can get email updates, you can follow them on Twitter. It's in the very early stages, so that's something to watch out for. Yeah, I think they've had about three updates on Twitter at the moment, so we'll find out how they're going to go about telling us about our impending doom. <laughs> for those of you who are interested, uh, down in London at the Science Museum, there's a Cosmos and Culture exhibition going on, which uh, commemorates the 400th anniversary of Thomas Harriot um, using his telescope to map the moon. And for those people who haven't heard this yet, um, Thomas Harriot was the first person to use the telescope in an astronomical way, and he actually beat Galileo. So this exhibition is uh, on from the 23rd of July 2009, so it's going on at the moment, until uh, the 30th of December 2010, and uh, aims to explore how astronomy has changed the way we see our universe. So we'll display several instruments and devices which people have used to look at astronomical objects. And if any listeners happen to go along, it might be quite nice if someone records a review and you can send it in, we'll play your review on the Jodcast. Mm -hmm. It's also free, so get yourselves down there. So, from the life of one pioneering astronomer to another, and this month's interview is with Professor Miller-Goss. Uh, so, Stuart, it's over to you. Okay, on the Jodcast now, we're joined by Professor Miller-Goss, who's a former director of the VLA and VLBA in at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Socorro. Welcome to the Jodcast. Great to be with you. And, as well as doing lots of your own research in radio astronomy, you've um, spent some time researching the life of... A lady from Australia who's called Ruby Payne Scott, and she was one of the pioneers of radio astronomy in Australia. Can you introduce Ruby to us and give us a bit of her early history? Yes. Uh, she was born in 1912. She was very unusual. and was, she, she went to university, of course, uh, in the 1920s, uh, early 1930s. Very few women in Australia uh, went to university. Uh, she did a physics degree. Uh, she graduated in physics from the University of Sydney in about uh, 1932. And she was the third woman ever at the University of Sydney to do a physics degree. It was very unusual. Of course, getting a job anywhere in, in uh, industrialized countries in 1932 was difficult, especially for women. So she realized that with a physics degree, she was going to be very, have trouble getting a job during the Depression. And so, like many, People in her situation, she uh, did a diploma of education and became a school teacher. Uh, and she taught at a uh, Anglican girls' high school in Adelaide uh, for a couple of years. In fact, I visited that school in 2007, and they knew very little about her. But in fact, we found quite a few pictures. And she was the, the science mistress and was living there at the school. 
But the main thing that changed her life was World War II. Of course, as you know, uh, Australia joined the European War at the same time the United Kingdom did in late 1939, uh, and the Australians were mobilizing. And, of course, this had a tremendous impact on the employability of women with science degrees. And she immediately went to work uh, in 1939 working for an electronics company, a company called Amalgamated Wireless Australasia, where she worked for a couple of years. I think they were a little nervous about hiring her as a scientist, and in fact, they made her the librarian for a couple of years there at AWA. But in fact, it turned out that she was a, a real black belt electrical engineer also. Did they give her the opportunity to do engineering as well as uh, being a librarian? They did. Later on, she started doing uh, engineering, and in fact, uh, wrote a couple of papers on engineering aspects. But by 1941, of course, it was very clear that the Australians were going to really need to develop their expertise in radar following the example of the British endeavors that had already begun uh, uh, some years earlier. So that was to protect against enemy air raids? Yeah, especially Japanese air raids, of course, that were anticipated that, of course, the war with Japan was, was about to begin, and as we know, did begin in, in December 1941 uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor, of course, bringing in the United States and, and the Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, etc., into the uh, Pacific War, and, of mm. course, the whole World War II began. So Ruby was, was, was one of three women that had physics degrees, and of course it was very important that these folks would go into the, uh, into the radar research lab in Sydney because many of the men, of course, were going into the armed forces. Uh, as the Pacific War began, of course, as you know, the Japanese were attacking Australia. In fact, uh, they were bombing uh, Townsville, Queensland in uh, February 1942. There were very severe air raids in Darwin in the Northern Territory, so that the uh, Australian radars were extremely important for the protection of, of the Australian uh, mainland. And as we know, of course, the Japanese uh, Navy uh, uh, and armed forces were on their way to invade Australia probably in early uh, uh, 1942, and they were stopped at the Battle of the Coral Sea. So uh, Ruby was really well-placed, and within... A, uh, she joined the radar research lab, a place called the Division of Radio Physics at the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, uh, and she started working on uh, radar engineering in 1941-1942. Was that a large group in the radio physics? It was a, a, a lab with had a, toward the end of the war had about uh, 300 people in it which was pretty large for a small country. Of course, in Britain and the United States, there were thousands of people working at the equivalent labs. So there were about 30 or 40 scientists at, uh, at the CSRO lab. And they immediately found something that was very important, that the radars that had been developed by the British and by the Americans were very unsuited for the Australian environment, because in Australia, they were fighting a war in the tropics. And they needed lightweight, corrosion-proof equipment. So uh, very soon they realized they couldn't just co copy the British or the American equipment. They needed to develop their own, and they, they developed a very successful radar called the LWAW, standing for Lightweight Aircraft Warning Radar, that was a portable radar that actually could be uh, uh, put into boxes and thrown from landing craft into the sea and floated up and have a radar station working within a couple of hours. Wow. <laughs> It's an incredible achievement, and Ruby played a very important role in this. So as World War II um, came to an end, what happened to the radio physics group? Uh, the radio physics group is very interesting. Uh, it had a very different effect in Australia than they had in the United States and in, uh, in the United Kingdom. Because in both the UK and the US, the radar labs broke up, and there were universities and research groups at universities for the groups to go back to. And this, of course, became the origin of the famous radio astronomy groups uh, at Jodrell Bank at the University of Manchester, a well-known story involving Sir Bernard Lovell. Uh, and there was also the group at the Cavendish Lab uh, at uh, Cambridge University uh, under the leadership of, uh, 
of Jack Radcliffe and Sir Martin Ryle, et cetera, that worked on, they had been working on radar, but they they left the radar research. But in Australia, there were university research didn't exist in 1945. So it was a very wise decision. They decided to form a new group, not working on wartime research, but to uh, start working on radio astronomy. And this is where uh, Ruby's expertise and as an electrical engineer and a physicist came in as the radio astronomy began to develop in Sydney in 1945. And so did they make use of the, the radar kits in the same way that Saberna did here? Absolutely. It's very similar. Uh, they had one big advantage in Australia is that they had cliffs. Uh, see, they were only a few miles from the sea. They were uh, facing the Tasman Sea uh, looking toward the east. And the uh, cliff heights there are almost 100 meters in size. And there were radars there. And they actually formed an interferometer. It was called a sea cliff interferometer. Uh, and it's very similar to a Lloyd's mirror, which is a term from physics. Uh, and so that you actually formed a high-resolution radio telescope by looking at the interference patterns from the radiation coming from the sun or the radio sources as it bounced off the sea and interfered with the direct path coming into the radio antenna. So it's just like when we have an interferometer made from two antenna, except here yeah. you just have one and you're using the sea to yeah. provide you the second one. That's right. It's a very unusual interferometer. Interferometer with a single radio telescope. <laughs> <laughs> That's ingenious. It's a very ingenious. And of course, they knew about this effect from the war. Many different people... In fact, uh, Fred Hoyle had worked on the theory of this during the war. It was unknown in Australia that he was working on it. Uh, but uh, there was a group of people that had worked out the mathematics. It was a very complex mathematical situation to work out the, how the interference patterns worked. So they were really well posed to, uh, to work using this interferometry technique. It was just like the radar, except, of course, it was no longer a radar. They didn't use the transmitter anymore. They just used the receiver. And then there was another good... Uh, uh, incredible piece of good luck. It turned out that in February 1946, this was close to sunspot maximum, which was just good luck. It's completely fortuitous. If it had been now, then there wouldn't be very much activity on the sun. That's right. If it had been a couple of years ago during the sunspot minimum, it would have been very different. Uh, that is, say, you know, like 2003 or four or something like that. So 1946 was the expected sunspot maximum, and one of the largest sunspots of the century appeared in the first days of February 1946. We have a wonderful photograph of this uh, sunspot made by the Royal Greenwich Observatory. It almost, it was like a part in a thousand of the solar surface was covered by this giant sunspot. Wow, that's a pretty big sunspot. Uh, now, of course, this was observed by ra the radio astronomers in the UK. Uh, Stanley Hay observed this with uh, Sir Edward Appleton. Uh, it was also observed at the Cavendish Lab, and uh, I think uh, sometime during that year, uh, Sir Bernard Lovell and his collaborators at Jodrell Bank also detected the large radio outbursts that were associated with the sunspot activity. Hmm. But this was really fundamental in the, in the new field of solar radio astronomy because uh, there were such large solar outbursts. They were what we would call today uh, type 1 bursts associated with the large uh, sunspots. At this point, did, did people know much about the, the emission of radio waves from the sun? No, this was, they were discovering it for the first time. And the so-called radio astronomers had a big disadvantage. They were physicists, electrical engineers. There were almost no astronomers among them. And, of course, they had to learn the astronomy. And they did that. Of course, they made connections with, uh, with solar optical astronomers. Uh, there were some at the University of Cambridge in the U.K., of course, at the Royal Greenwich Observatory. They were uh, in Canberra at the Mount Stromlo Solar Observatory. So they were learning some solar physics. But uh, for the first time, they detected these giant radio outbursts where the, the energy from the sun would change sometimes by a factor of a thousand or even in a few cases a factor of a million. Just because of the, the outbursts? The outbursts that were arising in the solar corona. Right. And, you see, of course, very soon they did realize that this was the, this new radio astronomy. In fact, they, the word radio astronomy wasn't even known at this time. They called it solar noise. Uh, this noise was arising from the solar corona, the outer, outer parts of the sun, which has a, a quiet temperature of, of 
the quiescent temperature is around a million degrees. Hmm. The radio astronomers were very well poised to study the solar corona. The optical astronomers had only been able to study the corona during uh, uh, total eclipses by the moon, which were very rare. So, of course, the whole new physics had to be developed by uh, these these new budding radio astronomers uh, as they had to learn about uh, the different emission mechanisms that were producing the solar burst. And these are now known to be related to uh, 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 plasma oscillation in the presence of strong magnetic fields. And that, I guess that tells you, does it tell you something yes, about the temperature as well? it tells you something about well? the temperature, the density. And, of course, it was also, it was very soon apparent that this was a great way to study the relations, the uh, solar terrestrial relations could be studied by this method because the so-called type 2 bursts that are extremely strong radio events, uh, they are produced by shock waves in the corona traveling with a velocity of something like several hundred up to a thousand kilometers per second. And these are related to the disturbances that produce aurora on the Earth. It takes about a, a day or so for the physical mechanism at, at that velocity of around 1,000 kilometers per second to go, travel from the sun through the solar system and hit the, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth, producing uh, apparent very large aurora. So th this was one of the, the fields of interest for the, the, the new um, radio the new physics group. group. And yeah. it turned out that there were essentially in, those, in the first year, 1945-1946, there were really only three major radio astronomers in Sydney. This, this was Joseph Pawsey, an Australian who had done a degree in the 1930s with Ratcliffe, working on the ionosphere at the Cavendish Lab. Uh, there was Lindsay McCready, who built a receiver. He was kind of in charge of electronics. And there was Ruby Payne Scott, who was essentially kind of the, she would almost call her the scientific director of this group of three people. And she was working on the, the physics of the uh, emission mechanism from the solar burst and was also working on a lot of the engineering problems. Did she have much trouble in the group? Were they all perfectly happy with... They were perfectly happy, but by this point she was getting into trouble with the hierarchy of the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization because in 1944 she got married. Was that a problem? Because today obviously that poses no problem at all, but... I guess oh, things were different. In those days, it was a very serious problem. It turned out that essentially, as in many countries, but certainly in Australia, any woman that got married in a professional type of job, including school teaching, if she got married, she would lose her permanent position and would become a temporary, or in some cases, would even lose her, her job. And this even occurred at, at you know, individuals that were working, you know, young women say, that were working as bank clerks. They could be uh, uh, dismissed from their full-time job, and as I said, school teachers. So Ruby knew this was nonsense. She uh, kept it a secret. It was no big deal because all her colleagues, they all knew she was married. They didn't think anything about it. They were they had were working during the war together and after the war. Everybody ignored it. But in around 1949, 1950, the CSIR hierarchy found out about this and were very upset about it. And a very acrimonious uh, battle ensued uh, between Ruby and including even the chairman of CSRO, Sir Ian Clunis Ross, and they explained that she was no longer eligible to be a full-time employee. And this had a big impact on her financially because she lost her superannuation. So that is, she lost her pension. And so she, it was a financial blow to her. Uh, and she fought against this, and there was quite a bit of actually almost semi-public uh, um, controversy about it. But in the end, she lost, and she became a temporary. So why why did she tell them, given the the craziness of the the reaction that she got? Yeah. Why did she tell them? Well, I, it's, they found out about it somehow. In fact, we're pretty sure that even the the administration in Sydney at the lab knew about it, and they were part of this little conspiracy. Right. I mean, yeah, they thought it was crazy, too. They just wanted to ignore it. But somehow the people at the head office of CSRO, we don't know this, found out about it and, and started asking her letters. And then they actually had a meeting with her in person. And it's in, when they met her in person, she was always very truthful. 
Right. She was always very clear. She said, you know, anybody asked me if I was married, I always said yes. So there was no no obvious deception on her part. I guess it, it goes to show how, in what high regard she must have been um, seen by her colleagues if they they were all ignoring the rules. It was. In fact, it's all, it's it's ironic. We have her complete personnel file. That's an advantage of, of working on government organizations, at least in Australia. You can, you know, we, uh, those of us that do this can see all of her files, or uh, many of them are online, and we have every piece of paper in the personnel file <laughs> has been digitized. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we can see all of this. And you can see uh, right after she lost her permanent position, it was probably the local administration, the local administration in Sydney thought, well, let's, let's at least slightly reward her, and they raised her salary. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least that's a, one positive to come out of that. Yeah, well, of course, she, but she lost her superannuation. So what what happened? Did, did she carry on in, in that sort of reduced role? She carried on, and of course, she went from strength to strength uh, in the science that was going on. You see, she was only a radio astronomer, really, from, say, 1944 to 1951. Right. And uh, she started doing uh, conventional radio interferometry, you know, using a, a, a system to actually make movies of solar bursts, uh, using it a Michelson interferometer, very similar in principle to the way the uh, the Merlin array works mm. uh, at Jodrell Bay. So what what sort of time resolution on those movies? Uh, they they uh, they were able to make movies of uh, type 2 and type 4 burst uh, 25 images a second. Wow. Now, they were pretty crude images. Okay. But they were nevertheless, they could, then you see, they didn't have to infer the motions of the solar burst in the corona. They can actually measure them. So they can actually see the emission mechanism moving outward in the solar corona. And this turned out in this case, this was synchrotron emission in the type 4 burst. Pretty impressive stuff. Yes, it was really bright. And, and she was working on this. And the end of her career occurred in 1951 because for the second time she became pregnant. Now, it is the second time. We know that she had been pregnant probably in 1946 or 7 and had a miscarriage. And she was, by this point, she was in her late 30s. Having a baby, does that, given the rules of, what well, I don't know what the rules of the time yeah, were. Yeah, there was no maternity leave, of course, at all. So for a woman to become a mother it meant the end of their career, uh, and so she had to resign. Of course, we have a collection of very praiseworthy letters from many different people in the CSRO. Sir Fred White, who was uh, who was some years later was to become the uh, the chairman of CSRO in Australia, a New Zealander, uh, wrote her a very uh, commendable letter. Uh, Joe Pauzy said at her farewell, she was the best physicist in the lab. This was in uh, she uh, resigned uh, in uh, uh, July. 1951, and her son, Peter, was born in November 1951. Now, he became a famous scientist. His name is Professor Peter Hall. He's a professor of mathematics and statistics at the University of Melbourne. He's a fellow of the Royal Society. He's certainly one of the the more well-known, eminent mathematicians in Australia. Uh, he's been president of the uh, Australian Mathematical Society, etc. Many, many honors. So Ruby's career as a radio astronomer came to an end. It was the birth of, of her son. Uh, but we know a lot about her life in the subsequent years. A, a couple of years later, uh, a daughter was born to Ruby and Bill Hall. That is Peter's sister. Her name is Fiona Hall, and she is certainly one of the more well-known artists in Australia. Uh, uh, her artwork can be seen in uh, many different parts of Australia. Uh, there was, in fact, a uh, an exhibit uh, last year at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, which I think was uh, more than 100,000 people came to. It was called Force Field, and this was a retrospective exhibit on uh, Fiona Hall's uh, life work. And so both Peter and Fiona have have been my collaborators in the last uh, 10 years as we've worked on this project to write uh, the biography of their mother, Ruby Payne Scott. So did, did they know much about um, her history in radio astronomy? A little bit, but not much. Uh, it, even though Peter 
became a scientist, a mathematician, he had talked to her a little bit about it, and she told him, oh, you know, some things about how exciting it was to be looking at the uh, sea cliff interferometer and see the fringes coming from the small sources on the sun mm. at uh, sunrise. Uh, he didn't know much about the details, uh, and in fact, uh, most of the details of her scientific career had been uncovered by uh, Dick McGee, my co-author and myself, as we've researched the project. And just out of interest, when, do you know when the rules changed? I, I presume they, they changed. Uh, yeah, the rules changed. Uh, you know, it was in the 1960s, so it took a long time. Now, the injustice done to her was, of course, done to many different people. Hmm. And the difference with Ruby, in the sense that I think the fact that it had such a lasting impact, is that she complained about it. And it was she was almost publicly complaining about this, these unfair treatment of women. And there was all, in addition to the whole business of being married, there was also equal wages. Uh, women, uh, after the war, were reduced to typically, say, two-thirds or three-quarters of the wage of men doing the same job, and she complained about that. During the war, they were given equal wages because it was realized, you know, this was needed for the wartime endeavors. And, of course, she complained about that, and it took many, many years before women were paid equal wages. And, of course, you know, there was no concept of maternity leave in 1951. And uh, that, that's why we think it's so fantastic that this, this award was instigated last year called the Ruby Payne Scott Career Award, for typically for young mothers who come back after maternity leave and to provide them with uh, research support in terms of uh, you know, extra funds for their research. And there, I think last year there were 18 of these awards were given out in Australia well, it's good to see that um, the balance is being redressed um, so that other yes. people don't suffer what Ruby suffered in ending her career just because yes. she was married and had a baby. Yes, of course. You know, there were many, many examples of, of women you know, protesting uh, inequalities in the workplace. And, and there's, uh, of course, quite a large literature in Australia, especially about the, the endeavors to achieve equality in wages and, and treatment. Well, it's, it's been great to hear about the life of and the research of one of um, radio astronomy's founding scientists. That's right. I mean, in some sense, you'd have to say she can be, she is responsible for this for the discovery, not the naming, but the discovery of type one, two, three, and even possibly type four bursts. These are all arcane terms that are that you know solar physicists are well aware about. Well, thank you very much, Miller, for giving us a, a summary of Ruby's work and life. And yes. did you say you, you were writing a book? Yes. The, the name of the book is Under the Radar. The first woman radio astronomer, Ruby Payne Scott, is going to we're having a book launch at Sydney University at the 25th of November this year. It's it's around a, it's about a 200-page book, and there's a many many pictures around 100 uh, images in the book. Right. Well, we'd recommend to our listeners that they in in November they go and put that, or maybe before November they can put that book on their Amazon wish list or other bookstores. Um, and pre-order that book because it sounds like it'll be a very interesting read. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Stuart, and uh, a fascinating personal history there. It really was, and it's good to hear about radio astronomers from the beginning of the period of radio astronomy and from Australia as well. They do an awful lot of radio astronomy down in Australia. And from what you can see in the radio sky to what everyone can see in the night sky. Here's Ian Morrison to tell us what's up in August. Well, the night sky for August 2009. I'm going to start with something I don't usually do. I want to say something about the moon, which obviously is not specifically re relevant to, to this month. But I expect some of you saw that NASA have released some photographs taken by what's called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO. That actually got to the moon on June the 23rd, and it's gradually reducing its orbit until it's about 30 kilometers above the surface. Now, it's not quite there yet. It's about 60 or so kilometers. But already, it's taken some photographs of some of the Apollo landing sites. Now, if you go to the Night Sky website, just put Night Sky into Google on our Jodrell Bank website, I've actually used two of those images as my image of the month, uh, those of Apollo 11 and also of Apollo 14, which is rather nice because you can actually see the disturbance of the ground as the astronauts walk from the LEM, the Lunar Excursion Module, 
across the surface to where they located the Apollo Lunar Science Package called ALSEP. You can actually see that as well. So I'm hoping these photographs might finally lay to rest what we might call the moon hoax. Now there are two other things to say. Earlier this year, a group of British astronomers decided to make what they call a world record lunar image. Uh, they got together and using 11 and 14 inch optical telescopes, they made a total of about 280 separate images of small parts of the surface at high resolution. And then these were composited together to give an 87.4 megapixel image. That's the largest image ever made of the moon from the ground. It has a resolution of about half an arc second and that's basically about one kilometer on the lunar surface. Uh, and the images are stunning. I've shown an overall picture and also a detail of the region around Plato and the Alpine Valley. And it really is absolutely superb. There is a link to the website where you can actually scroll around the moon surface and zoom in. But also you can actually go to a page where you can order or download a file or order a print and most of the money will actually go to Sir Patrick Moore's charity. So do, do please follow those links. It's a wonderful image, well worth looking at. And finally, this month too, Google have actually put a Google Moon into the Google Earth system. And uh, that allows you to scroll around. And, and the best bit, I think, is that they've actually got some... Um, television sequences in high definition taken by a Japanese spacecraft as it flew over the lunar surface. Uh, and, and those really are superb too. They're shown as little blue squares on the image. If you click on them, you can actually go to the YouTube site where these are available. So do have a look at some of those. Um, it's really quite nice. And I think interest in the moon is, is sort of rising again. A little bit more in the highlights. Okay, well, let's first start with, with the stars. Um, Leo is pretty much setting in the glare of the sun, but it is still just possible in the first couple of weeks to see Saturn and then Mercury, which actually be very close to Regulus on one of the nights during the month. So it's still there low in, low in the sky. Higher up to the left is the constellation of Bootes with its bright star Arcturus. And just to the left of that, a little arc of stars called Corona Borealis. That's the northern crown. And I apologize that last month I said it was the northern star. That's just a brain not linked to mouth, I'm afraid. The northern crown. Moving up towards the south, you will see the constellation of Hercules. And it has four stars making up what's called the keystone. Look up the right-hand side of the keystone, and you can actually see... M13, a lovely globular cluster, a fuzzy glow in binoculars, a little fuzzy blob in binoculars. But if you have a telescope, it can look absolutely stunning, particularly if the telescope is, say, eight or more inches in diameter. Below that is Ophiuchus, which has got almost nothing of any note, I'm afraid. Uh, below Ophiuchus is, in fact, Scorpius, with its lovely red star Antares. Sadly, from the northern part of the UK, it's barely above the horizon. We don't really see it very well. But if you go perhaps to the south coast, or preferably go on a summer holiday south to the Canaries or somewhere in southern Europe, you'll see it much, much better. And also, to the left, you'll see the constellation of Sagittarius. The main stars make up the shape of, of a teapot. In fact, one of our listeners has actually sent an email saying, you know, why did I call it the teapot? It used to be known as the Archer. And that is, of course, its real name, Sagittarius the Archer. But the main stars do really make a rather nice representation of a teapot with a handle and a spout. Uh, and so if you look at it on a star chart, in fact, you'll see, I think, that the teapot is quite a nice name. It's a bit like we actually have a name for the brightest stars in Ursa Major. That's the Great Bear. That's the constellation. But we actually call that group of stars in the UK the Plough, and the Americans call it the Big Dipper, after the ladle that was used by the farmer's wife, perhaps still does, to ladle out soup to the farm workers at lunchtime. So that's why we call it the teapot. It just looks a bit like one. And if you actually think about where the liquid might be coming out of the teapot, out of the spout, with binoculars, you might see a little fuzzy glow, which is a rather lovely open cluster called Messier 7. And above the teapot, a little glowing region called the Lagoon Nebula. 
So it's a very nice area to look at, but sadly, you do really need to go rather south to see it. Over to the east in the sky, you'll see a rather lovely region that we see throughout middle of the summer and well into the autumn. It has three major constellations, Cygnus, Lyra, and Aquila the Eagle. Cygnus the Swan has a bright star called Deneb up at its left. It's the tail of the swan. Lyra has a bright star, Vega, and the brightest star in Aquila is called Altair. They make up what is called the Summer Triangle, I think a name given by Sir Patrick Moore. And as I've said before, if with binoculars you move up from Altair towards Vega, you cross a slightly darker part of the Milky Way, assume you can see the Milky Way, and against that darker part you can see a little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or the coat hanger, because it looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Uh, there's some lovely objects to view with a telescope in this region and again if you go to the night sky page I have details about some of the interesting constellations that are best visible this month so have a go at that. So what about the planets? Not a bad month in fact. Let's start with Jupiter. It's now lying in Capricornus and it's actually rising just after sunset and uh, in the middle of the month on August the 14th it's actually at opposition which means it's roughly due south around midnight. It's opposite the sun. So when the sun's hiding behind the back of the earth Jupiter's high in the sky. Except sadly this year it's not high in the sky. It's lying close to the bottom of the ecliptic, the lowest part of the ecliptic, it never reaches more than about 25 degrees above the horizon. And that means atmospheric refraction can actually upset its image if you're looking at it with a telescope. Um, I tend to use either a green filter, and you can try different colours, just to get rid of some of the colour effects, the fringing you get, and with a big telescope you could use a very narrow band filter there's actually a green filter called oxygen 3 it's a, a, a line spectral line of oxygen and that means you're looking at it in monochromatic light so the refraction effects in the atmosphere go away but because that filter cuts out most of the light you do need a fairly big telescope for that to work but a green filter will work with most telescopes to give you a rather cleaner image than you'll actually get just looking at it at it in all colours. Um, the magnitude stays at about minus 2.8 the whole month. That's because as it's closest to us, the distance isn't actually changing very much during the month. It's actually quite big now, about 48 arc seconds across, I think, and that means that on a clear, steady, calm night, you should be able to see quite a lot of detail on the surface. Interestingly, just recently, people have noticed a black scar on the surface. That could have been the impact of a small bit of comet or asteroid. Uh, you might remember, perhaps about 15 years ago, comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was captured by Jupiter. It broke up due to the tidal forces of Jupiter, and over a course of about a week, the individual little lumps of comet impacted on the surface giving scars, some of which were twice as big as the size of the Earth, and they were easily visible in a small telescope. I think that made people aware of what might happen should a comet actually hit the Earth. The effects could be quite disastrous if it's a big one. But don't worry about that. It doesn't happen very often. Well, I mentioned Leo and Saturn. It will be seen just low down above the western horizon in the twilight. You might even need binoculars. Its magnitude is plus 1.1, which is not particularly bright. And that's because the rings are very close to edge on. In fact, at the beginning of August, they're just at 1.9 degrees from the line of sight. Now, on the 9th of August, the rings of Saturn are actually edge on to the sun. Now that means we certainly can't see them in reflected light. What you will see, perhaps, is a little dark line across the centre of Saturn, partly caused as sort of a silhouette of the rings, and partly the shadow of the rings on the, the surface. So that's actually quite an interesting night to have a look for it. After that, in fact, the other side of the rings are illuminated, not the side we see. So although, sadly, Saturn really will be lost in the mire, the glare of the sun, after about the middle of August, you know, it might be interesting to have a look. Mercury. Again, that can be seen probably needing the help of binoculars, low in the west, again in bright sunlight. 
it dims from magnitude minus 0.4, which is not too bad, to plus 0.4 during the month. Um, on the 2nd of August, it's just 0.6 degrees above the star Regulus. So that might be quite nice to look at. And on the 26th, it actually is 3 degrees from Saturn. But I rather doubt whether you'll actually manage to see both planets by then, because they really be very low to the horizon in the glare of the Sun. What about Mars? Well, it's becoming more prominent in the pre-dawn sky. It's rising just after midnight and will be seen fairly high up in the east before dawn. The current magnitude is about plus one. OK, it's getting nearer to us, or perhaps we should say we're getting closer to it because we're moving around the sun sort of on the inside track somewhat faster. And the angular size increases from 5.3 to 5.8 arc seconds. So under really good seeing conditions, when the atmosphere is very steady, you might start beginning to see some of the prominent features on the surface, particularly Certis Major, a dark V-shape uh, form, and also perhaps a hint of the polar caps. Now, later on during the year, as the Earth comes between the Sun and Mars, it'll be closest to us and will have its maximum size, so giving us the best view. However, because Mars has a fairly elliptical orbit, the separation between the Earth and Mars when it's at its closest varies quite substantially. A few years ago, it was about as close as it ever gets, and the angular size was about 25 arc seconds. But at the moment, that angular size at maximum is getting less. It's only going to be something like 16 or 17 arc seconds at best later in the year. More of that to come in the following months. Well, finally, Venus. Um, it's now moving further away from us towards the far side of the sun. And that means that more of it is illuminated. It's now a waxing gibbous disk about 14 arc seconds in size at the beginning of the month. But of course, as it's going away quite quickly, that drops to 12.6 arc seconds before the beginning of September. And the magnitude is dropping from minus 4 to minus 3.9. That's not much. And something I've said before, an interesting fact about Venus is that it stays pretty constant at about magnitude minus 4, even though its distance from us changes quite substantially. The angular size varies by about a factor of of five. And the reason is that when it's nearest to us, the phase is thinnest, but the actual reflecting area that we see in angular size stays about the same, no matter where it is. So 4.4 down to about four is sort of the range of magnitudes we get for Venus. Well, finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, August is the month when we hope to see the Perseid meteor shower. Um, basically, it's fairly long-lived. You could see it any time from the, about the 10th to the 15th of August, and it's best probably from 11 o'clock onwards as Perseus, that's where the radiant is, that's why it's called the Perseids, that rises up in the east. Now, this year, it's not going to be totally brilliant because, sadly, the moon is going to be rising at about the same time, and its glare will obscure the fainter meteors. In fact, there'll be less of the moon and it will rise later towards the end of that period. So the 14th and even the 15th might well be best. Uh, the Perseid meteors are particles normally smaller than a grain of sand that were released as a comet called Swift-Tuttle passes the sun. So anyway, it is worth having a look, but uh, let's hope the moon doesn't cause too much of a problem. Now, the first week or so of August is a nice time to look at Jupiter with a small telescope. We normally see it with four satellites. Well, if you look around the end of July, beginning of August, it will appear to have five. Now, of course, it hasn't got an extra one, but there's a star. It's called 45 Capricorni, which is only just fainter than Callisto, one of the Galilean satellites. And it's sort of an interloper, so it will really look as though it's actually got five satellites. And uh, on August the 3rd, Jupiter will occult it. That means it will pass in front. That will start at about 11.52, just before midnight, British summer time, and carry on for about a couple of hours, and then it will reappear again. And I do hope it's clear, and you might have a chance to see that, the night really the midnight of August the 3rd, 4th. Sadly, 
I'm just going to be arriving in Rio for the International Astronomical Union, and I rather doubt I'll be able to see it. Well, I've already mentioned that in early August, on the 9th particularly, Saturn's rings disappear. Certainly it might be fun to have a look at that any time during the first couple of weeks of August when Saturn is still visible. You'll almost certainly need to have a location where the western horizon is really very low. I can go up onto a, a little hill near Alderley Edge and look out over the Cheshire Plain. I thought that was a spot that I'd found myself. But when I went there one night, because there's going to be a nice conjunction of three planets visible low in the west, I found three other astronomers there. So obviously this was a good spot. But you do need somewhere where you've got a good low western horizon to see it. I've mentioned the moon before in this report, but we do have a sort of event on the morning of August the 6th, so the night of August the 5th, just after midnight uh, on the night of the 5th, 6th. Now, then it's full moon, and that's, of course, when the moon sometimes passes into the shadow of the Earth and we get a lunar eclipse. And they're wonderful when it's total, um, but even when you have a, a, a partial eclipse, when at least part of the moon goes into the full shadow of the Earth, it can be really rather lovely. Now, that's not happening, I'm afraid, on the morning of the 6th, but there's what's called a penumbral eclipse. It means that part of the moon, the lower third, will pass into part of the Earth's shadow not into total totality at all. The lower third might then appear somewhat washed out, the contrast will go, and obviously a little bit less bright. So it might be worth having a look for. So you might get a sort of a flatter, dull grey tone. Anyway, that's quite a few things to look at during August, and as the nights get a bit longer, you haven't got to stay up quite so late to see them. I do wish you well. OK, well, we try and say something for those in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, let's say what you might see looking north during August, uh, perhaps 8 p.m. in mid-August. Well, you have a lovely view of the Milky Way at the present time. It arcs overhead with the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpius high overhead. I've talked about those before. They are, of course, upside down for you, so uh, the, 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 the spout isn't really looking in the right way. But nevertheless, you have a beautiful view, and I do wish I could be down there with you to see it. Uh, below Sagittarius, we have Aquila the Eagle, and down lower in the northeast, you've got Lyra the Lyre and some of the stars of Cygnus the Swan. Um, I could mention that just over to the right, if you follow downwards from Aquila, it's a rather sweet little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. A sort of little narrow pentangle of stars making up the head and the tail. It's actually sort of upside down from you. From us, it looks as though it might be leaping out of the, out of the sea. But uh, that's a beautiful area to look at. And left, just in the north, fairly low down, you've got Hercules. Then you've got Corona Borealis. Perhaps it's naughty we call it the northern crown when you see it in the south as well, but it is in the north. And then you've got Bootes with the bright star Arcturus. So that's quite a nice uh, view as well. Looking south, of course, you've got um, the Milky Way dropping down to the southwest. There's a beautiful region I've talked about quite a bit earlier in the year where you've got the constellations of Centaurus, Crooks, Musca, and Vela and Carina, a very rich part of the Milky Way. And you could perhaps go back to some of the earlier podcasts this year when I talk about some of the things you can see there. Uh, one thing I could mention that fairly low in the uh, sky is Vela, and there's quite a big cross there. It's called the False Cross, much, much bigger than the, the, the Southern Cross, Crooks, which is higher in the sky, but uh, often picked out, and sometimes people think, oh, I've seen the Southern Cross. Well, in fact, the big one is called the False Cross. South, almost due south, you have the large Magellanic Cloud. Up to the left of that is the small Magellanic Cloud. As I've said before, just above the small Magellanic Cloud, you might pick a little fuzzy blob. That's a wonderful globular cluster called 47 Tucani. Now, the large Magellanic Cloud, to its lower right, has a rather rich region. It's called the Tarantula Nebula, and sometimes 30 Doradus. There's a star cluster there, and one of the largest regions of star formation that we know of. Um, 
Because many stars are born there, some will be quite massive and they'll die. And in 1987, we had a supernova, 1987A, that was seen in February. And that has actually been one of the ways we've been able to get a more accurate distance to the large Magellanic Cloud. We now think it's about 157,000 light years away. That's partly being done because the light from the supernova, as it left, spread through space at the speed of light, and sometime later, about 230 days, illuminated a ring of dust that had been ejected by the star sometime earlier. Well, if you know the diameter of that ring, and that was measured by the Hubble Space Telescope, you know the time it takes uh, to, to, to illuminate it from when the supernova exploded, then in fact you can actually calculate the distance. And that's one of the ways we've now got a better idea of the distance of the large Magellanic Cloud. And that's a very useful stepping stone in terms of distance to the more distant galaxies. It forms part of what's sometimes called the, the cosmic uh, distance ladder scale, the, the scale that we use to gradually work our way out further into the universe to find distances of remote galaxies. So it's quite an important uh, little galaxy. It's sometimes called an irregular galaxy, sometimes a barred spiral. It has a bit of a bar across it. And it is, in fact, the fourth largest galaxy in our local group. Uh, the Andromeda galaxy is the largest. Our own Milky Way galaxy comes second. Then there's M33, a face-on spiral galaxy with a small nucleus. And then four, the large Magellanic Cloud. So again, the skies are very rich in the south. I'm hoping, in fact, to come to New Zealand beginning of July uh, next year to, to lead a group of people on an affinity cruise in the south of South Island amongst the fjords. And if it's clear at night, we'll have a lovely look at the sky. So that's something to, for me to look forward to next year. Thanks for that, Ian. And I must say that I've been really very, uh, very lucky to see some beautiful night skies over here in Taiwan. I've even managed to see uh, the Milky Way properly, like really, really vividly for the first time in my life. And I'm really quite excited about that. And this morning I was up at half past three to watch the sunrise over Mount Jade in, in west central Taiwan. So I got to see Jupiter and Venus almost uh, on opposite sides of the sky as the sun rose. So that was pretty good. I think I hate you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and in fact, talking about the sun, on the 22nd of July, we got the, we, we had the solar eclipse. Now, it wasn't total. Uh, I was in Hualien, which is in east central Taiwan, and we got a 70% a eclipse there. So did you get to see that or were you climbing out, Dave? Uh, we got, we got, Perfect, um, perfect sunshine. That's good because a lot of people who I know went to see it, um, from Singapore and off from Japan on cruise ships were chasing for holes in clouds and seemed to have seen a lot of cloud instead. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Uh, but there was a lot of news coverage of it in, here in Taiwan and, uh, we got to see, yeah, like I say, we got to see a, a fair amount. Uh, what, what really, surprised us was the fact that there was really, even though there was no darkness, there was a decrease in sort of the ambient glare, mm. if you like, that uh, that made you know that uh, that an eclipse was going on. And I, in fact, because I had no glasses or, or anything like that to view the sun safely with, I made a mock-up of the cardboard box. I got a big cardboard box and punched a hole in it with a chopstick. Oh, classic and, pinhole uh, camera. I was able to do some um, some science busking on the street with that, so uh, I was pretty pleased with myself on that one. So yes, I, I've I've had a very good time of astronomy over here. Hopefully, at some point, we will all be reunited in one room, and if not before, it will be the twenty-first of November, which is our first Jodcast live. Now we're hoping that this will take place in Jodrell Bank Observatory. Uh, down in Goose Stream. What will it be, guys? We're going to start sometime around midday. We're still to confirm the exact starting time. 
and we'll be having a tour around the observatory and then we'll be recording this is a very bad idea we'll be recording a jodcast in front of the assembled jodcast listeners so we've currently got plenty of places left if you want to come along to jodcast live then please contact us via the website and let us know and we'll put you on the list yes it promises to be uh, a lot of fun with all of the bits that usually get cut out left in which could be uh, very interesting for people listening. It's always certainly interesting for us. Yeah, I don't think people quite realise how long it takes us to record these little bits in between. <laughs> Makes a good fun. Ah. Yeah, so please get in touch if you would like to come along and watch a Jodcast being recorded and being able to give your uh, input into the making of our show. And in fact, some people have already done that with their feedback that's come in. So what have we got in the postbag this month? Well, not quite in the postbag, but we at the Moonbounce event that was held at Joddle Bank to commemorate Apollo 11 landing on the moon, we had a couple of people from Sky TV News who ended up interviewing Tim O'Brien, and they said that they know a Jodcast listener called Ian Carby. So I said I would give a shout-out to Ian Carby, who's a broadcast engineer, I think. Um, so hello to him. Yes, hello. Uh, and hello also to David Burden, who has emailed saying that he loved the live, he would love to come to the live Jodcast. We hope to see you there. And he loved the intro this week. And that's what I always like to hear. Thank you very much. And he tells us about a tran- tranquility based simulation for Second Life, uh, for the Apollo anniversary, which overlays the moon terrain with the maps of where they walked and keys in the photograph and video to the places they were taken. And we'll put a link to that on the show notes. We've also got an email from Jesper Johag. I have no idea if I pronounced that right. I always get left with the awkward names. Anyway, so 50 years ago, in December 1959, the Swedish radio did a broadcast called Space Age Questions, where people could ask questions to space scientists, a bit like how we have Ask an Astronomer now. Joddle Bank's very own Professor Bernard Lovell was one of the space scientists on it. So we'll put a link to that on the website. Apparently it starts in Swedish, but is mostly in English, and Professor Lovell is about 28 minutes into the programme. And we've also had emails from Katie Calvert and Russell Paul, for, so thanks for those guys. And if you want to send us an email, go to the website and fill in the contact form. So yeah, uh, Nick Johnson forum also thought uh, Bernard was quite uh, interesting. And uh, yeah, Rapid Eye is apparently looking for a lift to Jogcast Live from North Carolina. So, so if uh, anyone happens to have a boat or something... Then yeah, plane. maybe a plane, a you, know, plane. Yeah. you know, a licensed pilot, that'd be quite cool. And continuing on the feedback about Sir Bernard, um, Megan has also linked to a few other interviews that Sir Bernard has done, and you can find those in the forum. And of course you can find the forum at forum.jodcast.net. We are still on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And YouTube on youtube.com slash jodcast. And that brings this month's edition of the Jodcast to an end. And there will be no August Extra edition. Oh, so look out, for, look out for the next jam-packed bumper edition of the Jodcast. It'll probably be about the same length, but it'll be twice as funky. <laughs> on, on or about the 1st of September. So it just remains for me to thank Professor Miller-Goss uh, for the interview earlier on in the show. And so, until next month, don't forget to jot on. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. We are going. We are going.